Live and in color from the NBC News Radio Broadcasting Studios of KCAA, 10:50 a.m., 102.3 FM, and 106.5 FM, located in beautiful Southern California, and in parallel from the Turfs Up Radio Studio in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Thanks for tuning into the Water Zone Show this evening. Hey, and a pleasant good afternoon to everybody across the country. This is Rob Starr along with our other great host, Mr. Chris Davey. And Chris is out of California today. So, Chris, how are you? And welcome back to the U.S. I appreciate it very much, sir. It is uh, great to be back. However, I would highly recommend to anyone, if you have the time, a tour of the Scottish Highlands is recommended. Uh, the photos that you sent, my wife and I were looking at them, they were just awesome. The one with you and your you and Jan on the beach and the castle yep. behind you, that was just an awesome picture. So I'm yep. glad I'm glad you 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 did you went there for your personal stuff and, and uh but uh I'm glad you guys had a, a great uh, great kind of a little mini vacation in for, for that as well. It was terrific, Rob, and I'm glad that I got the chance to share a couple of photos with you and um <clears throat> You you saw the whiskey tasting one as well. So uh, any yes, whiskey fetching out of out there, there's yeah. uh, there's a lot of good whiskey in Scotland. Oh, absolutely! I told you I saw a bottle for seventy nine hundred dollars of McLaren. It was a, a fifty year old barrel one, seventy nine hundred bucks at Costco. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, the next time you're there, Rob, buy two. That's a little bit out of uh, out of my price range, buddy. <laughs> If you want one, I will buy you one. That's not a problem. Anyhow, I'm glad you're back in the states, and uh, I know part of your 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 children got sick after they came back, and luckily you guys are clean of COVID, but they are now with COVID. So uh, yeah. I wish them wish them the best. Yeah, wish them the best, and hope they get back. I, I think they're only quarantined till Monday or Tuesday. So they I are. hope good. I hope they recover great and, and be like that. And we have on 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 standby, who's going to be joining us here in a matter of many seconds, the Maven herself, Miss Chris Austin, the purveyor of Maven's Notebook. Chris, welcome. Hey, how you doing, everybody? Good. We're good. So how's everything up in Chico? Oh, it's very nice. A very uh, mild day, although it's going to start getting hot. Uh, you know, here comes the heat, but... Uh, but yes, yeah, so far it's been been very pleasant, and heat is not too bad. But uh, but we're just getting into the summer. Yeah, uh, it's going to be it's 107 today, 108 it's supposed to go into the more triple digits by the weekend. And Chris, how are you doing out in LA County? It's not as warm. We've had the pleasant weather since I've gotten back. You know, since last since Sunday, essentially been in the mid 80s. Uh, however, uh, where my daughter went back to, uh, you know, Arizona, the Phoenix area, 116 for you, Rob. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's getting warmer out here. But again, I get I get the breeze because I'm by the mountains here. And uh, uh, about four o'clock, it starts to come. And, and it's a dry heat. So I, I actually don't mind it now that I've been here. Uh, it's, it's, pr- it's pretty nice. But uh, Miss Austin, I know you know everything about what's happening in water. And I know there's a lots of things. There was a friend of mine, and I think you probably know her, Darcy Burke. Uh huh. Yeah. And I've known her for oh, 17 years, I guess, somewhere around there. I know she used to work for. Uh, she was doing stuff at, at, at down in, uh, uh, I just in Orange County uh, Water, and then she was before that she was running something uh, at one of the reservoirs, a museum, that they never got to open. 
And uh, but anyway, she did a thing about uh, a discussion about is California water crisis man-made. Can you tell us a little about that? <laughs> well, actually, I have to tell you that's like a 25-minute video, and and I didn't really watch much. Of oh. it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Look? This is why we should discuss these things before we go on air. But, uh, yeah, I have, man, there's just so much news in the news cycle that, you know, the dirty little secret is I I sort of skim a lot um, and try and go back to the ones after I'm done and and try and dig in and read them all. But uh, it's uh, it's difficult. (laughs) There's a lot there. Well, give us us your, your, your point of view on what's going on. We'll, we'll go with that. Okay. Well, well, actually, you know, well, we got the drought, and you know, everybody is uh, is the drought is getting a lot of attention, and that's good. Um, and we'll we'll see where where it's going. The thing about drought is it's like it's kind of the same storyline. You know, it's dry. The reservoirs are low. Save water. You know, <laughs> Unless something actually happens, you know, it's usually the drought is getting worse, and you know, uh, there's not not much, not a lot of new stuff in the drought. But what was what I thought was interesting today is that UC Davis put out a a, a, a story that if if the population at large would reduce our consumption of meat. That that would help water quality. Uh, specifically, it would help reduce nitrates uh, that are in the water. Uh, you know, nitrates that that go through the sewage treatment process and then are discharged into the waterways. Even with advanced uh, advanced treatment, most most wastewater treatments don't uh, take out nitrogen. It's it the technology exists, but it's very um, and so, you know, and and as we're starting to really crack down on our waterways and you know water quality issues, uh, you know municipalities are going to have to either start uh, installing this expensive uh, uh, technology, or you know we as the population could you know consume less meat. Now that's really hard because you know here in America you can't tell people what to eat, uh, tell people all kinds of things, but people don't tell you what to eat. So you you can't um, you you just can't pass a law. Uh, but the truth is, you know, as a whole, our society here in the U.S. we eat way too much meat, more meat than we certainly need. And that has ramifications, ramifications for our bodies and for the environment as well. And water quality is just one of them I never really thought about. <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's like saying you can't eat cabbage or cauliflower because it'll cause flagellants, which will cause methane. I mean, where, where well, does... Well, but, there are people pushing, there are people pushing laws just like, I, I, don't, I don't believe it's a law. Maybe it is by now. I don't know where California was talking about putting things over the cows behind to keep the reduction of flagellants. I mean, I mean, how far do we go? Well, actually, they they found that, um, you know, uh, seaweed that you can feed to cows, uh, they, they, they're much less flatulent. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's just there's just a lot of 
things, I guess, along those lines. Uh, and and a lot of people talk about, well, if we, you know, if we didn't consume meat, we would, weren't growing cows and meat products. That you know, that would that would be a lot easier on the environment. Um, and I, I think to a certain extent they're correct, but also, you know, uh, cattle out on the landscape help uh, take down the, the brush and the vegetation that would otherwise be a, a fire risk. Uh, and I think Mr. Davy and I would be interested in starting a company that makes flagellant meters because you know somebody's going to be somebody's going to be pushing the button on those things that that they're going to start measuring people and they're going to do a tax on it and all that stuff. I think we can make a lot of money doing that, don't you think, Chris? I do. Not uh, the whole seaweed thing is intriguing to me. Of course, that's the only reason I eat sushi is because of the seaweed. So you know, <laughs> we, that, there's another idea. Yeah, you, you, I remember the first time you went for sushi with me. I only, I only, I, 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 I only, I only eat like four or five pieces. A minute. Yeah, <laughs> I eat fake sushi. Oh, well, there's nothing wrong with that. But but yeah, I mean, I I I, I truly believe somebody down the road is going to be pressing that we can't eat certain things because it causes this or that or the protein for the. I mean, uh, I well, I I think in a lot of ways with our supply chain and who knows what's happening, I think we're going to start finding. You know, we're going to have to start making some choices. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, talk about, uh, you know, in the international world, talk about the wheat, I guess, that's not coming out of the Ukraine. And, you know, we have stores, meaning um, storage for certain, you know, lots of products, but that storage is not infinite. And, you know, I, I think what we're starting to see is disruption. There was another story about how uh, they weren't, uh, you know, the acreage for processing tomatoes is way down this year. And what that means for ketchup and salsa and tomato sauce, you know, we always, you expect to go to the store and there's a can cans of tomato sauce there, but those all come from processing tomatoes. And, you know, that shortage isn't going to be felt right away, but if next year is also dry and next year there's not a lot of acreage in processing tomatoes, we're going to start seeing shortages. Uh, well, you know, you were writing, you were writing about a story, I think Texas A&M, um, back here in the, in the article, uh, it says that the uh, more water is evaporating from lakes than, than we thought. And, and I think I, I told you guys a long time ago, I went to a meeting with uh, uh, water agency, Metropolitan Water, and they were talking about the, uh, the little fish in the, uh, in the Delta. And, uh, you know, we got to save all of them. And, and they said, it's, you know, they're, they're going, they're getting killed off or whatever. And they had this one other company they hired to come in and they did a study and found 180 degree opposite of what the first report said. And so I, I guess my question is, all these companies that we hire to go out and do these reports, we're spending a lot of money, or the taxpayers are spending a lot of money, and then later we find out they're not accurate. What what happens with that? Well, I, I don't, I mean, I don't know if it's not accurate. <clears throat> you know, science and, and research is, you know, really very specific. Sorry, yep. my cat, my loud cat is here in the room with me. Um, 
mm-hmm. you know, what, one thing that we do in the Delta is uh, they actually have come together and they have put together a science action agenda, which they got everybody together from all these walks of life and science in the Delta, you know, academics, scientists, and and, and um, agency scientists, and, you know, so got everybody there that does science in the Delta, and they came up with a, a gigantic list of everything that they needed to know about uh, what's going on in the Delta, and they have, I don't know, I think like a hundred different actions. And and then what they did is all the agencies that fund science now refer to the science action agenda. And when people, uh, researchers, submit uh, requests for funding projects, they have to relate it to something on the science action agenda. They actually have to say this relates to agenda item number 1.5A, you know, or whatever. And... What this has done is it's really helped coordinate um, all these different people doing science in the Delta, and so that we're learning more, and that we and we're learning about things we need to learn about, not you know things that that really don't make us that that might be interesting, but aren't connected to any management need. I guess, you know, water managers need information and we need our scientists to be giving them that information. So it's actually a a really good effort that I imagine there's a lot of places that uh, could could use such uh, organizations to their science efforts. Um, You know, when it comes to uh, species in the Delta, fish in the Delta, and really fish pretty much all over California, in general, they're on the decline. There are some fish that are doing well. There's a lot of fish that are supported by hatcheries, um, but there's also quite a number of endangered species, and especially in the Delta, you know, any fish in the Delta, uh, there's a few fish that are doing pretty well. We have some, the Sacramento split tail, I think, is one is a fish that benefited from that's been benefiting from the floodplain restoration that's been going on there, and so it was once uh, in looking like it was going to need to be listed, but it has rebounded significantly. So it's not all the fish, but it's it's uh, a lot of them, and a lot of them that we care about, you know, like salmon. Um, and really, the the tricky part about salmon and about uh, some of the fish in the delta is they're kind of at their southern range of their, you know, part of the world that they live in. And, you know, things are warming up. Temperatures are rising. And uh, when when it's hot in the air, the water temperature in the delta is warmer, too. And when it's you know, water can be too warm that fish perish. Salmon need cold water, uh, and when it's not cold, then then the, the you know the baby salmon die. That's just the way it goes. And as we continue to experience these high temperatures, uh, it's really uh, going. It's really going to be a good question to see if we're able to keep these species alive. 
uh, you know, going into the future. It's going to be very hard for salmon, I think, because the temperatures are getting warmer and that really affects temperatures all up and down the rivers, in, including in the Delta. Um, but, you know, we'll see. There's a lot of people working to, uh, to see what they can do. I hope they solve that because that could be a drastic uh, loss to everybody. Hey, I, I see with some of the things that Newsom's doing, they have uh, the story about the in, indigenous tribes and the and the environment will pay the price for California's new reservoirs they're proposing. Yeah, well, dams are always controversial things. Uh, in general, dams that go across rivers or streams are more controversial than streams that than dams that are built off stream. Uh, and so, uh, but yeah, the environmentalists and the tribes have really been uh, um, objecting to the site's reservoir project, um, feeling that, that you know, the, and sites is an off-stream reservoir, so they would draw uh, water from the Sacramento River and pump it up into the reservoir and then release it when, when it's needed. And there's a lot of objections to taking more water from the rivers. There's objections to uh, a lot of people saying it's just going to um, evaporate. Yeah. So I didn't, are, are, is, is it magic time, focus, focus? No, no, no. Wiggling my hands at Chris. <laughs> <David>. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know. I, I thought gonna, you were like telling me to hurry up there. No, 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 no. No, this, I'm this working is, at. This is the fun of working remote with everybody. Everybody's all remote to each other, so it's kind of funny doing these things. Well, we were supposed to, you know, I'll I'll be online here looking at each other, but we turn turn off our cameras now for uh, you know, not to for the internet bandwidth, so still flying in the dark a little bit. <laughs> Go ahead, Mr. Davey. I was just going to tag on to the whole gardening thing, right? I mean, if you remember, <clears throat> um, we were discussing, Rob, I didn't I didn't discuss this with you, uh, Chris Austin, but we were discussing an article that on the current doubt has uh, started a revival in home gardening, uh, especially in the West, in California, yep. uh, where, yeah, where a lot of folks are, are now getting more interested in growing some of their own vegetables. Uh, you know, vociferous or not, <laughs> regardless of, you know, that part of it. Um, uh, but they are. And taking it up beyond the hobby stage so that it becomes a, um, you know, a, a providence issue, right? Something that's uh, providing them with a with a food source rather than a hobby. As a hobby, gardening is great. But as a hobby, it's, uh, you know, tomatoes, for example. Uh, gardening is the only hobby you can spend $87.53 on to grow six bucks worth of tomatoes. So, you know, it's got to go beyond the hobby uh, to a to a providence kind of a thing. So, um, you know, hopefully that will that'll keep going. Well, you know? yeah, we we love having a garden. And uh, we're, we're kind of trying to figure out how to have the garden up here in Chico. It's a different weather. It's different sun and trying to figure out where the best place is in our backyard but yeah uh i i i love the homegrown tomatoes and and some years we've had really really big big crops and there's nothing like a blt with the homegrown tomato 
Yep. Well, I got, I got to tell you, the times I've been at, at uh, Chris's house, Mr. Davies' house, and had dinner, uh, but but more importantly, the gardens that he has at his home, and not only the the, the floral gardens, but the the uh, vegetable gardens that he has, incredible. He is, uh, and you know, he doesn't tell everybody this. Aside from having a really green thumb, and he and I'm glad he's in the Green Industry Hall of Fame because he deserves that, as well as you, you Chris Austin. Um, he got a real natural go, I don't know, attitude about how to grow vegetables and other things, and, and they are absolutely delicious. And he maintains a beautiful yard between the, the vegetables and the floral stuff. So, And he's a great cook, by the way. Well, Gus, when am I coming over? Yeah, when am I coming over? Uh, you're welcome, Chris. That's for sure. Rob has uh, Rob has had uh, plenty of samples out of my out of my garden. Yeah. You should you should open a restaurant, Chris, because you do you do well. Well, I I started off in the restaurant business, man, when I was uh, you know in my umpteen years old uh, stage, and looked at it at that time and says, Nah, I don't think I want to be in the restaurant business. <laughs> no, well, it's not, yeah, right now it's kind of tough. Anything with the economy, but you're you're right. I think I think the home gardening thing is turning more into something uh, way advanced than just just a hobby for growing growing little things. And and because of the food shortages and everything else, I think it will get more serious as the year goes by. Um, you know, you know, we look at inflation. Even though people some people say, "Oh, we're doing great." Well, we're higher than everyone that's in the G7. By a lot, and uh, I, I don't know what's going to happen with all the deliveries and everything else. I mean, it's 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 a little scary these days. You know, you look at all the, all the issues with water. You got you got Lake Lake Tahoe. The Clarity uh, report came out, and that's supposed to look. Uh, it's getting really yucky. Uh, I guess from what July Fourth people did, they they blanketed the whole river with trash. I mean, it's, uh, apparently, at like after the day after. July fourth everywhere is uh which would be July fifth. Is it's uh, trash all over the place. Um I don't know why people seem to think it's okay to, you know, leave their trash behind, but people do, unfortunately. And I mean it's the one thing that people can do and should do that would certainly make our environment and our waterways much cleaner. Just put your trash in the dang trash can. Well, look what they do in the ocean. I mean, you, you, you get blown away when you see these videos of places in the ocean that's got tons and tons of plastic and all this other it's, stuff. It's, it's all over. I mean, it, it's really it's really a serious problem, plastic trash. And we're, you know, not really doing anything. We're just scratching the surface. California... The state legislature passed a bill, I think, last week to limit plastic waste. And I think it's something like uh, they, manufacturers have to reduce their plastic usage by 25% by, like, 2030 or yeah. 2035. Okay, so, like, 10, you know, 10 years down the road, there, you know, there people that going to sell something in California need to reduce their plastic use by 25%. I, I mean, that's, that's nothing. That's nothing. But what it really takes for, you know, for the plastic stuff is, is for the consumers to demand something better and to be 
ready to you know to use options to, to think things a little differently. If you go to the grocery store and you buy a bunch of bananas, uh, you don't really need to put those in a plastic bag. Just I I don't I don't put bananas, avocados. If you got a bunch of things, sure. If it's wet, yeah. But but I kind of look at every at the things I buy and sort of question: Do I do I really need a plastic bag? You know, if I go to the store and I didn't bring my own reusable bag, um, I look at what I have. Do I really need to have it in the bag, or am I just gonna you know? Can I take these four items in my hand and set them on my seat and take them into the house? I mean, even the small things. If we can just start thinking about how to use less plastic, um, where where it's easy for us to do, and then lean on the manufacturers to solve the problem, um, because it's not just a consumer thing. I mean, the manufacturers have to come up with alternatives. I, I agree with that. The only thing I don't like is the paper straws. I hate those. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't like, but uh, and and unfortunately, I really like straws, and I have metal straws, but I don't take them out with me, uh, you know. But I do use my metal straws around the house. Yeah, but, try yeah. try going through that with a TSA agent at the airport. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it back, take it back from you. Well, Chris, we appreciate you coming on every single week and uh, giving us the latest and greatest in what's happening for our listeners. I always tell you every show. Go to www.mavensnotebook.com, become a subscriber, become a sponsor. It's a great place to get all the news you want to know about water every single morning. And I know I open it up every day, and Mr. Davey opens it up every day, and, and it uh, gives us lots of good insight. So, Chris, thank you very, very much. We'll, we'll see you and hear from you next week. Okay. All right. Good night, everybody. Good evening. What's your kitty's name? That's Smokey the Cat. Okay. Bye, Smokey the Cat. <laughs> Thanks for being on the show. Okay, Everybody's watching on the video segment. All right. We'll be back in just a few minutes with our featured guest. We have a pretty good uh, uh, discussion coming up on that. It's about solutions to the global water crisis. So stick around. We'll be right back. KCAA Loma Linda, 1050 AM, 106.5 FM, and now 102.3 FM. Are you presently part of the irrigation industry as a worker or business owner? Do you want to learn how you and your staff can boost your knowledge and productivity? Then you should check out Irrigator Technical Training School. Irrigator Tech is the leading source of quality instruction serving all facets of the irrigation industry. Their courses provide a basic, easy-to-understand approach that raises the skill level, competency, and professionalism of landscape and irrigation personnel through practical education and services. Irrigator Tech combines classroom and real-life hands-on training, leading to a well-recognized certification that both customers and employers demand. Irrigator Tech's specialized courses can help you quickly become a certified irrigation auditor or a certified installer, repair, maintenance, or backflow technician Courses also include certificates in smart water application or becoming a certified tree worker. Most importantly, all certifications are state recognized and Irrigator Tech offers annual renewal classes to help keep your certification up to date. So whether you work in California, Washington, Oregon, Nevada, or Arizona, there's an Irrigator Tech class near you. For more information on how to jumpstart your career, call Irrigator Tech toll-free 866-614-1755 
or visit them on the web at irrigatortech.com. That's toll-free, 866-614-1755, and on the web at irrigatortech.com. Love you, love you not. They love you. Satisfying your customers, it's a full-time job. Want an easy way to make them happy? Try having your ornamentals delivered straight to the job site with Nursery Direct. Could save you and your clients a pretty peony. Think about it, instead of driving to the nearest nursery, picking up the order, and then driving to the job site, the crew's able to begin work right away. That cuts time and labor. Savings you can pass on to your customers and you can get your plants delivered direct even if you don't have a nursery branch in your area. Here's another quick tip. Keep a substitutions list on standby for every project so your team knows what to do in case a plant isn't in stock because there's nothing customers appreciate more than a project that finishes on time and on budget. They love you. They really love you. Aww. K-C- a. 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 All right, so welcome back to the second half of the Water Zone with Robin. We're going to play this great afternoon. A couple quick announcements about uh, what's happening in the world of irrigation. Uh, the Irrigation Association is excited to kick off another Smart Irrigation Month, which is July and sponsored by HydroPoint, to shine a spotlight on the benefits of efficient irrigation and the wise and efficient use of water. And throughout the month of July, be sure to keep an eye on the Irrigation Association's social media channels and their website for helpful resources and tips how you can get involved and visit them on smartirrigationmonth.org to get started. Chris, I know you have some announcements about the uh, Industry Hall of Fame. I do. A quick one. So, as you know, many, many people in the green industry are honored by uh, becoming members of the Green Industry Hall of Fame. Nominations for the 2022 class of the Green Industry Hall of Fame are open during the month of July. So if, if our listeners know someone who's been in the industry for a significant amount of time, 20 years or more, making a positive impact, uh, nominate them for the Green Industry Hall of Fame. You can do that by going to greenindustryhalloffame.org. Green Industry Hall of Fame is just all one string, dot .org. Uh, right at the top there, you'll see uh, a nomination button. Just press on that button and follow the prompts that will take you through there. Basically, the, com- the qualifications are, you know, a person with integrity and passion, minimum 20 years in our industry. They've developed or invented a new technology, made uh, significant contri- contributions to the industry that have resulted in change. Um, provided education or encouragement, self-sacrifice, made some other change to the industry, basically somebody who is an industry veteran that has contributed. So if you get a chance, go to uh, greenindustryhalloffame.org and nominate somebody. Great. All right, we're going to bring uh, our, our guests in. and We have two wonderful people, one named uh, Lawrence McDonald. He's former VP of Communications for the World Resource Institute, and Betty Ot- Betsy Otto, who's director of the water program at the uh, at that association, and she grew up on water. So they're going to talk about solutions to the global water cr- uh, crisis. Pretty interesting. So, uh, Lawrence, take it away. I'm Lawrence McDonald. I'm delighted to have with me today WRI's Global Director for Water, Betsy Otto. Betsy, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lawrence. It's lovely to be here. 
Our topic today is something that our president and CEO, Andrew Steer, has called the biggest crisis that no one is talking about, the crisis of water. We're going to spend a little time on how serious the crisis is. Uh, Betsy, you lead a team that has the world's best tool for measuring water risk, Aqueduct. We'll hear a little bit about Aqueduct. But then we're going to pivot to solutions because uh, I think a lot of people feel the world is in pretty dire straits now. Water is one of those things we could actually solve. That's right. That's right. Start out with the problem. No, actually, I want to start out with you. How did you get interested in water? How did you come to be here to be one of the world's preeminent water experts? So I grew up on the water. I grew up around the Great Lakes. I'm from the Midwest of the U.S. And it's when you live in the Great Lakes region, it's always close to your consciousness to think about surface water. Great Lakes are 20% of the world's surface fresh water. Uh, and it's just part of the culture, right? Um, I actually have a business background but I found that I was really interested in doing environmental work. And I started working for a small nonprofit in Chicago after I left the business world. I was doing uh, consulting, management consulting. I worked for a small nonprofit in Chicago that was creating a new greenway plan, something that nobody had heard about back in the day. And that was actually, as we quickly realized, built around the region's rivers. Those were the connective systems, if you will, the arteries that everybody could sort of understand needed to be protected. Uh, and that became the, the way that we organized a green space plan. Uh, and it was extremely effective. And that really got me excited about working on water issues. And so I took off from there. Now a lot of your work is focused on the developing world. And there often the challenges are bigger, the populations are larger, the stresses are greater. What was the pivot that got you involved in development? Well, I, I love doing uh, domestic policy work. I, I lobbied on the Hill for many years. I worked on you know, regulatory regimes and so on to protect clean water. But I had the opportunity to go to a fellowship at Harvard, the Loeb Fellowship, uh, to think about just the nature of the built environment and the natural world. And I started realizing that, first of all, there's a very big world out there, and there are a whole set of other questions and issues that those countries are dealing with. And there's some really interesting solutions that are coming from those countries as well, or could be. And so that got me excited about it. Um, I'd known WRI's work for many years, and I had an opportunity to come work here. Um, I want to turn now to risk. You recently re released you're going to correct me. Global water update. What did you call all these very frightening numbers you put out into the wild? Oh, uh, you mean our Aqueduct 3.0 yes. update? Yes. Well, we so in early August, we released uh, an updated version of our Aqueduct Global Water Risk Mapping Tool that's um, maybe known to some folks who are going to be listening to this. Um, it's really – we're very excited about it because it's a really step change improvement in the kind of information we can bring together on a totally open source public platform. Uh, it's already being used very extensively by companies actually around the world, also by investors to try to understand where there are water-related challenges that could provide – that could be risks to business operations, for example, or financial investments. But it's also being used a lot by uh, governments. We're starting to see more and more of that by civil society organizations and so on. And so in early August, we released the new version of the tool, and part of what we came out with in that release was the fact that there are 17 countries in the world that actually represent a quarter of the world's population, a quarter of humanity, that are in areas that are facing extremely high water stress. Well, what does that mean? 
That means that 80 to 100 percent of the water that's available, the water supply that's available, is already in use. It's already being used to generate electricity for household purposes, to run industries, uh, to grow food. And the challenge with that, of course, is that as we grow more, or as we start to see impacts from climate change or a drought, we're much too close to the edge, uh, much too close to the margin of already using all the water we have. And that's the spotlight we were trying to shine on the issue. I want to go more into the nature of those risks. But first, I want to give you a chance to tell us about some of the new insights from this tool. You've got the new headline numbers. You work with communications people like me. We tell you, give us the headline. But there were some new things like groundwater information. Yes. Um, yes. Tell us about that and why that matters. Yeah. So um, what's exciting about this version of Aqueduct is that for the first time ever, we're able to take a comprehensive look at surface water and groundwater. Groundwater data is very difficult to get, but the uh, organization that we worked with at University of Utrecht has a really good modeling system, essentially, and was able to couple that model for where groundwater is how much is being replenished versus how much is being withdrawn, and to couple that with information about surface water. So we're getting a much fuller picture in places all over the world now of how much water is available relative to how much is being used. So could I look at this tool and say, okay, I'm thinking about moving to Karachi, (laughs) a troubled city in the south of Pakistan. I could zoom in on Karachi, and what would I find? Well, so you would look at 13, you'd be able to look at 13 different indicators of water-related risks. So that surface and groundwater use versus uh, demand versus supply. You'd be able to look at the historic occurrence of droughts, of different types of floods, both river floods and coastal floods. In some cities, you get both, so that's important. You'd be able to look at what is the difference month by month in when water is available, so seasonal variability. And for a lot of our indicators now, another big improvement is that we have monthly data, not just annualized data. That's very important when you're thinking about growing crops or for certain kinds of industrial development, you know, when you need a particularly high amount of water, let's say. Uh, So there's a whole bunch of these different kinds of indicators. We have a couple water quality indicators and so on that we look at to give you a a multi-layered, which is important, picture of what's happening with water. Important to say, though, I'm glad you gave that example. This is intended as a high-level screening and planning tool. It is not intended to say, we're going to put a facility in this spot or I'm going to move to this neighborhood. You need a lot more very local information to make those kinds of decisions. But this is a first-order screening tool that's extremely important, in part because it provides information in places in the world where there isn't good information, and it gives you good, comparable, credible information across all places in the world. Talk to me about India. Before the show, we were looking at the list of the 17 most water-stressed countries. India is smack dab in the middle in terms of the level of stress overall at number 13, but it's a bigger place, right? India is huge. India has three times the population of all the other 16 countries combined on that list, just to give you a sense of how big they are. Really, water and water crises, water scarcity, water quality issues, all of those are an existential question for India right now. Uh, They released a report, the government did earlier um, this summer, saying exactly that, saying that water was going to be either India's future or its undoing. They were as stark as they could be. And in fact, they referenced some of our aqueduct information in that report from the National Planning uh, Agency within the government. So they're well aware of this challenge. 
it's very difficult because India is naturally arid in much of the country, not all the country. There are parts of India, just like in the U.S., that are very water-rich. But it has a very large population, a very rapidly growing economy. Uh, it's uh, helped to feed itself by uh, doing irrigation and providing a lot of free pumps to irrigate farms uh, to farmers. But that's caused a lot of overpumping of groundwater with sort of no end in sight on that. And so there's some real challenges that India has to get its hands around in order to be able to manage its future. You were mentioning before we started recording about the subnational variability, which is one of the strengths of the tool. Can you talk to us about one of the areas in India that is particularly stressed in terms of water? Well, one that will jump to mind that a lot of people have heard about is the area in Tamil Nadu around Chennai, the city of Chennai. So Chennai actually had its uh, you know, ground zero moment where its reservoirs were down to zero. The government was having to bring water in on tanker trains uh, and in tanker trucks. People were standing in line for the better part of a day, uh, not able to go to their jobs, not able to run their small businesses, just to have enough water to manage in their households to survive. So it's been a very, very serious issue. Poor monsoons over the last couple of years, late monsoons this year, and frankly also mismanagement both of how water was being allocated and used, but also very importantly of the natural ecosystems, the natural infrastructure, the lakes and streams and watersheds that capture rainwater infiltrated into the ground that had been rapidly built on that really took away a lot of the you know former water supply. All of those factors came together as a sort of perfect storm. But it is by far not the only city or area in India that's going to be experiencing that. Many cities actually face similar threats in the future. You mentioned management. Maybe this is a good time. We've got everybody good and scared right now. There is a uh, an upside to this. And in uh, I think it began as a blog post. It's now also produced as a, an article available in download in, in PDF. 17 countries home to one quarter of the world's population face extremely high water stress. But you end with three solutions. Of course, there are many more, but maybe you chose these three, I think, because they're probably among the most important. The first is about increasing agricultural efficiency, something presumably pretty important to India, but to a lot of other parts of the world. It is, and I've sort of already made the point that um, the Indian government over decades ago provided free pumps to allow farmers to draw groundwater to irrigate Not their just fields. free pumps, but free electricity, I understand, Free electricity, right? too. All the more important, actually. So it's, you know, there's no, there's no reason not to just pump as much water as you can. Maybe you'll grow more crops if, if you do that. Um, that's turned out to be a really serious problem, right? Um, Have they been able to unwind that? I know it's politically really difficult. It is politically really difficult to do that. Um, and here's an interesting way that they have. It's a relatively small uh, project and approach, but it's actually now growing, which is to also give solar panels to farmers so that they're using solar power instead of diesel or electric power off the grid to run those pumps. But interestingly, what they're really doing is trying to get farmers to farm solar energy. So they don't overuse the solar energy to overpump groundwater. Instead, they're selling the solar energy back to microgrids on contract bases as, as part of consortia of local growers. So they're not just farming produce that they're planting in the fields, they're farming solar energy. So it's sort of trying to unwind a problem that the government so, created. So they've introduced an opportunity cost to the pumping. 
right? If I pump less, I can sell more power. Yeah, that's exactly right. I, what what also can happen is that there are cost share programs and other approaches that can be used to get farmers to use more efficient irrigation systems, not flood irrigation. A lot of that water ends up evaporating into the sky. And also getting farmers to plant different crops. So planting lentils and other less water-demanding crops, but that are still valuable in the marketplace, important for food security, and, and so on. So farmers respond to whatever the price signal is, what the market signal is coming to them. If you give them cheaper inputs and a good market for selling what they're growing, they'll respond. So there are things that the government can do in that regard to sort of shift how much water is going to agricultural production or how to make it more efficient, I guess. You, you mentioned drip irrigation, and some of our listeners will be familiar with the um, Israel water story, quite famous for drip. Are there examples of other countries that uh, maybe where the state doesn't have as much capacity, shall we say, uh, that have been successful in modifying their agriculture to make it less water intensive? You know, it's a really good question. Not a lot. Um, Australia is another, you know, very developed, wealthy country that would be a good example of using drip irrigation. Um, and Israel's taking a lot of that technology and trying to export it to other water-stressed areas around Africa, Asia, and so on. There are places in China where they're starting to experiment with drip irrigation, um, but it's it's not getting the level of uptake that it should yet. Um, your second. Uh, solution is investing in gray and green infrastructure. Gray, of course, being the cement and the green being the plants. But tell us more what that means when we say gray and green infrastructure for water. Yeah, I think we tend not to realize how much we rely upon forested watersheds on small streams, wetlands, and so on as the the water source supply and also the filtration system for our watersheds. Uh, for our water supplies, I should say. In the U.S., for example, more than 50% of our drinking water comes from forested areas, from natural forests and from private forest lands, not something that's well understood. You could argue that's their primary value, actually, not trees, not recreation, not anything else. If you actually monetized it, that would probably be true. That's true the world over. And we're losing that infrastructure. It's being developed. It's being degraded. But we can go back in in many instances and improve it, first of all, protect it, but restore it where that's necessary. So one example would be around Sao Paulo, which has experienced some very tough droughts in recent years. Biggest city in Brazil, for those who don't know. Biggest city in the uh, Western Hemisphere, I believe, 20 million people. I think you're right. I think it is, yeah. We did some analysis to show what the return on investment was to the water utility just from the point of view of water filtration, of improving water quality so that they didn't have to use expensive filtration at the end of the, at the, at the plant where they're taking the water in to then uh, distribute it. Uh, what that value was for investing in 4,000 acres of upstream source watershed for, for doing restoration work. And the return on investment was like 28%. It's the kind of numbers that make anybody at a water utility sit up and take notice. So that's the sort of value of, I mean, literally the value, economic value embedded in green infrastructure. And we need to do a lot more to bring together the gray infrastructure, which we still need, with better investments in green infrastructure. Your third solution, treat, reuse, and recycle. Right. We're all going to be drinking sewage, right? Basically. <laughs> well, those of us in Washington, D.C. We're already. Already are. We're not drinking it. Those are being used for irrigation, right? No, no, of course we're drinking. We're drinking all the upstream communities on the Potomac. We're drinking their sewage. 
Uh-huh. Which I was thinking about what's sewage. coming out of the Blue Plains plant. That's that's probably cleaner than what's coming down the river, isn't it? Well, I mean, probably. Blue Plains is a good plant, uh, one of the largest in the world. But no, all the communities upstream along the Potomac, right, that are withdrawing Potomac River, using it, sending it to their, you know, people's houses. They're washing their dishes with it. They're flushing their toilets. It's then going back through the treatment plant and being re-discharged into the Potomac upstream of where we're taking it into our yeah. drinking water treatment plant. So we're plant. already drinking treated we sewage. already are drinking treated sewage. We just don't think of it that way. And that's true, presumably, for most of the people in the world who are getting – for everybody who's getting their water from a river unless they live at the – what do you call that? The source of the river. Yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. exactly. So, you know, we have that sort of ick factor associated with it, but it's already happening. We just don't think about it that way. And, of course, we have to do it the right way, and there have to be the right safeguards. I mean, Singapore is a great example of this, right? They've created – they have a lot of water-related risks. They don't have a lot of natural water resources. They import 40 percent of their water from Malaysia. Malaysia turns off those taps during drought because they take care of their own needs first. Singapore has felt very vulnerable from that. So they've put together a variety of different strategies, one of which is what they call new water, which is just recycled wastewater. And they did a brilliant thing, which is that once they started to develop that plan and build the plant, they did school group tours. And they got every kid in the country to drink a cup, you know, cup of it at the end. And <laughs> this is a place was... that bans chewing gum. So you're, you're going to tell the kid you're going to drink right. the water. The kid will drink the water. Exactly. But... And then the kid goes home and talks to the parents about, you know, so you get people sort of inculcated in the idea that this is, you know, not only just fine, but it's actually really smart, which in fact it is. We recycle all kinds of other goods. We treat water in a different way. We take it from one source. We treat it. We distribute it. Then we treat it again to some degree. Hopefully 80% of wastewater in the world, by the way, is not treated at all. So that's a frightening thought. And then we send it far away. And why would we do that? Why not create closer closed-loop systems? It's far cheaper. There's an enormous amount of of energy embedded in that kind of pumping. I was going to say, talk to me about sludge to energy, one of my favorite things that you guys lead. So there is a huge amount of energy biogas energy that you can create out of sewage. This is like not dinnertime conversation, but it's It's okay. We're not eating. That's right. We're not eating. But it's really, really powerful. There is, in fact, more energy potential in wastewater than is the energy required to treat it. In other words, if you captured all that and you took that methane, you get lots of little bugs that eat the sewage in these big, you know, containers, um, and they release methane gas. If you capture that... You can run the treatment plant. You can sell power back to the grid. That's exactly what DC Water is doing right now. They used to be Pepco's largest electricity uh, customer, and they've now essentially gone off the grid. Then you can bring in other organic waste streams to that as well. You can sell compressed natural gas to restaurants to use. You can run vehicles off of it. China's doing this in a massive way right now. And if we did it in every city in China, it would obviate something like 4% of total methane releases from China, which might not sound like a lot, but methane is a very powerful, very potent greenhouse gas. And if you could knock off 4% of methane globally, it would do a lot to help us deal with uh, climate change. It's very exciting. I feel like you're a little modest here in that it's happening in China in part because of work that your team did and our colleagues in China in writing this up, explaining how it worked, and then, correct me if I'm wrong, inviting Chinese 
water plant managers to come here and tour the Blue Plains plant. No, you're absolutely right. It's, it was one of my favorite memories, actually, the, the gentleman who's now retired but who was heading up the ministry that was responsible for designing wastewater treatment plants around the country and was, uh, did some of the early work in China, watching him ask questions of he, – he acted as if his English was not that good. And then we got to the Blue Plains treatment plant, and he was asking all these very good questions in English. And he really had all the engineers there on their toes because he knew exactly what to ask. And coming out of that study tour, we had folks from Beijing and three other major cities in China. They came away realizing, oh, we can do this too. Because what Blue Plains did was they actually retrofit these systems onto their existing property. It wasn't like you had to go build a new treatment plant. They're, they're very manageable. They, their return is like within two or three years they pay for themselves. And the energy savings is enormous. That's such an inspirational um, story. And in a world where we need solutions, it's, uh, it's a great note um, to end on. Um, I want to close by asking you if you have a parting thought for our listeners about water? Yeah, I guess I would say that it's this. We, we all take it for granted. It, we need it for everything that we do. It's sort of hidden to us in many cases, in many instances. And at the end of the day, it requires government to really step up and manage our water resources well. And sadly, even what we're seeing in this country, and it's true the world over, is that we're sliding backwards. So the 40-plus years of really important legislation and regulatory structures that were in place to protect clean water, for example, have now been eroded. And we're going to see in this country, in the U.S., we're going to see the impacts of that. We need to go back to where we were, and we need to help a lot of other countries get there too. Thank you so much. I always learn when I talk to you. It's always so fun. Thank you, Lawrence. I enjoyed it. This has been the World Resources Institute podcast. I'm Lawrence McDonald. My guest today is Betsy Otto. She's WRI's Global Director for Water. We've been talking about the immense challenges that the world faces in terms of water risk and also the abundance of solutions. Thank you very much for listening. Well, thanks, Lawrence, and thanks, Betsy. We appreciate that. Coming to the end of our show, and uh, we appreciate Chris and I enjoy that. I'm glad you're back in the States, Chris. Thanks very much, Rob. Me too. And the thing that we have to tell our audience, most importantly, please help keep our planet blue. You got it. Without blue, you don't get green. So we'll talk to everybody next week. Have a good weekend, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. CAA Loma Linda, 1050 AM, 106.5 FM, and now 102.3 FM. NBC.